Welcome to the Property Nomads podcast and welcome to a special episode. It is episode 300. Uh, thank you for your continued support. Thank you for listening to the podcast, for downloading the podcast, for telling everyone else about the podcast. You know, we wouldn't be here if we didn't enjoy doing it and also if it wasn't adding value to yourselves as well. So a yeah, very special numbered episode as such. And it is September and we are doing a social housing September or, well, for September, funnily enough. And we've got Neil Goodrich on. We've had Neil on the podcast before, but because of his level of expertise, he's agreed to come back, take time out of his very busy schedule to talk about a multitude of subjects with regards to social housing. And we're going to start today with the changing nature of housing regulation and Neil will be the guest for the next three weeks and then we'll be wrapping up September with a different guest for social housing September so just again a massive thank you for continuing to support the show delighted to make it to episode 300 that means a lot to us and thank you as well all of that being said Neil thank you for your your time for recording this trilogy Delighted to be back and, you know, delighted to be part of the 300 episode. What a, what a landmark. Great stuff. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, good, good times. Good times all around. So, again, we've got this trilogy lined up um, with today's episode all about the changing nature of housing regulation. But just very, very briefly, for those people that might not have listened to the, the last episode you were on, just a little bit of background about yourself, what you've done, what you do, and... Wait, what are you doing moving forward? Sure, no problem at all. So uh, I have worked in and or studied housing, specifically social housing for the best part of a decade, if not longer. Um, I am a housing professional, so I work for a medium to large housing association based predominantly in the Midlands, southwest and east of the country. Um, I'm also a chartered member of the Chartered Institute of Housing, which is the professional membership body for uh, housing uh, professionals. Um, I'm also a founding member and former chair of the CIH's Futures Board, which was a specialist specialist interest board uh, for young housing professionals. Um, so not part of the main governance board, a, a sub-board of that. So um, live, sleep, breathe, social housing, much to my good ladies, charging. Um, work-wise, predominantly in performance and regulatory submission and business improvement roles, um, but with a, a strong personal interest in housing policy and policy development. Wonderful stuff. And uh, what I would say as well to people listening is uh, Neil's got a, a, a way to contact him, et cetera, et cetera. Links will be in the show notes as as with last time. Uh, Neil, I guess we'll start from the top then. Um, for those that might not know what housing regulation is, although it kind of sounds like it does exactly what I said in the tin, uh, what is housing regulation and how did it come about in the first place? It's an interesting one. We're currently in probably housing regulation three, maybe 3.5 um, in terms of a situation. But largely what you have is the, the broad rules under which providers of social housing can operate and exist. Um, we operate in England because housing is a devolved matter. So there are separate uh, kind of legislative and regulatory bodies for uh, Northern Ireland, for Scotland and for Wales. For England, we operate under a system whereby in order to get government cash, you need to register with um, what is now known as the um, Homes England. 
and the regulator of uh, social housing. Um, it's gone through a number of separate changes over the years, um, largely in line with either general requirements owing to public disquiet on how things have been operating, or simply because of the political ideology of the government of the day. Um, broadly, you've had the first iteration, what was known as the Housing Corporation, back in the late 60s, which came about when you started to see a number of independent charities created after the impact of Cafe Come Home, the kind of seminal movie around issues in the private renter sector today and homelessness. Um, it didn't quite achieve what it needed to do and underwent quite a significant revamp in, I believe, the 70s. And that largely stayed the case. So the, the regulatory environment from the kind of late 70s for housing associations in particular um, didn't really change until around 2007-2008 uh, when following some significant concerns with how housing associations are operating, um, particularly in relation to um, what were then known as uh, audit commission uh, inspections, um, where the audit commission didn't just cover housing, covered a whole range of public bodies, but you're finding that out of three possible stars to be awarded, a number of housing associations being awarded one, which is kind of the worst, um, and some significant concerns on how they're operating um, this culminated in a kind of large-scale review, which saw a completely new approach to how regulation was provided in England. So you had a split because previously the housing corporation both funded housing associations for capital development, but also regulated them. So on the one hand, you're handing out large amounts of cash to these organisations and then potentially telling them they've been an naughty boy or girl. And they're kind of seen as potential conflict of interest here being kind of uh, a working partner, but also someone that you, you needed to um, have a quiet word with on occasion. So under the Housing and Regeneration Act 2008, you had the establishment of the short-lived uh, Homes and Communities Agency and Tenant Services Authority. The former being the body that would award cash to what was now termed registered providers, going back to the point of if you registered with central government, you could get government cash, uh, now applied at this stage for for-profit providers as well as for charities. So it didn't necessarily matter what your raison d'etre was, as long as you abided by the rules of the day, um, you were able to access government cash, and that's still the case today. Um, and then the Tenant Services Authority was specifically focused on enhancing and expanding consumer and economic uh, regulation in relation to social housing providers. So effectively ensuring the governance systems within a organisation were robust and enforced, that the organisations were financially viable, um, but most importantly, from the view of the tenants, that the consumer standards were upheld and adhered to. Uh, this final element is very important because all of this was done on a proactive basis, i.e. the government wouldn't just wait for something really bad to happen. It would regularly go in and inspect organisations and ensure that everything was kosher and sweet. Um, this proved to be relatively short-lived because in, in 2010, we had a general election. The coalition government came into power with a real focus on ensuring greater efficiency and effectiveness in, in, in government institutions under New Labour, a significant raft of quangos, quasi-autonomous non-government organisations were created. Um, probably two very apt ones would be the Electoral Commission, which is still going these days, but also, very technically, 
Homes Communities Agency and Tenant Services Authority for Crown Ghost as well. This is an important point um, because under Grant Shapps, what you saw by 2012 was a merger of the TSA into the HCA. So you no longer had the separate separation between the two, effectively came a subcommittee. Um, so a subcommittee was in charge of you know, ensuring adherence to regulation for, for social housing providers. Um, as part of those changes, they flipped the um, proactive nature for the consumer standards. So the economic standards, which effectively the governance of an organisation and the financial viability, were still to be regulated on a uh, proactive basis, largely because of some heavy intervention from the financial sector and one of the elements within the government itself, because the initial plan was just to get rid of it completely. Um, and I'll, for some interesting background on this, I'd strongly uh, advise people to read uh, Gavin Barwell's um, uh, memoirs of his time in office because um, he gives a, a lovely little anecdote on kind of some of the thought process around that and ultimately the decision to retain um, key elements of it. What this has meant is that since 2012, thanks to the Localism Act, which is the particular piece of legislation that brought around these changes because all of these are brought in by statute, um, which is why it takes a lot of time to change them if you'd like to, um, Housing associations have effectively been self-governing when it comes to consumer standards. So on the services that they provide to the tenants that they rent to, to the leaseholders that they uh, own uh, the, the properties in relation to, um, they are kind of asked to mark their own homework. So they're expected to demonstrate compliance against the, the consumer standards, but there are only some very specific instances whereby the regulator of the day can actually intervene in a pro proactive manner um, with the serious detriment test kind of being a really high bar in, in terms of when they could actually go in and begin enforcement action. Um, for those who don't know, uh, serious detriment is effectively um, where a organisation is unable to provide the basic services in a safe manner to their customers um, or in an effective manner. Um, and generally this happens when you've got total service failure or the organisation is no longer financially viable, in which case they would be picked up under the financial viability elements of the economic uh, regulation. So you have kind of this night watchman approach to regulation, uh, which is probably the most significant change because you've gone from a period of kind of embryonic getting used to having a regulator to some proactive regulation in some way shape or form for several decades and then come 2012 you have this flip um the result hasn't been spectacular well it, it has been it in, not in the way that many envisage so many of the key findings that will likely come out now that the grenfell inquiry has finished its on a final phase of evidence gathering will be demonstrative of some of the systemic failings that have occurred within the sector as a result of a failure to proactively uh, enforce and manage the consumer uh, standards. Um, it is completely beyond me to say, would the more proactive environment have prevented Grenfell? That I cannot say and will be up to those more involved in the inquiry and uh, you know the processes around that to make that decision. But certainly people do what you mark. 
And if you are not keeping a close eye on these organisations, then they will focus on what they perceive to be the core priorities of the day. So significant change just within the regulatory environment. And that's before we get really into the political and economic environment that kind of sit alongside it as well. One point I think, and, and again, I appreciate it's, you know, social house in September, but I will mm. bring the private sector into it nonetheless, is without naming councils and bits of pop like that, uh, people that speak mm. through the network um, and various news sites and, and whatnot, is normally if, I understand that people want to tackle like road landlords and, and bits and pops mm. like that and you know, environmental health and all these issues that crop up. But what seems to make me me laugh sometimes, and I mean that in the best possible way, mm. is that you'll, you'll be on said local website or read said local paper mm. and, you know, you get, you get the story of you know, a tenant is upset because i don't know there's excessive damp or and you know it's, it's proper damp not as in yeah. we haven't opened the windows it's it's proper damp or yeah. you know my windows have been kicked in and and mm. you know my landlord's not doing anything about it and then it turns out the landlord's the local council and that to me always amazes me that mm. you know landlords landladies whomever they always seem to get an absolute bashing but then mm. sometimes you read things and it's like, well, actually, you know, my landlord technically is my council, um, yeah. and they're not meeting their own standards. So that's just, I, I don't know if that point, it's not even a point, it's just <laughs> a reflection that came to mind uh, based on what you were saying about self-regulation. So, uh, mm. I just thought it might be pertinent to point out. Oh, 100%. I think one thing that the sector, whether it be a local authority, whether it be a housing association registered provider, being the landlord in question, that it can be an assumption that because you're providing a public good, it means that you're well run and you are good in and of yourselves. And that's categorically not the case. Um, you can be you know, private landlord, very efficient, keep money aside for when repairs need to be done, properly manage your, your, your assets and have good working relationships with your, your tenants. You know, it, it doesn't matter whether you're there for profit or whether you're a non-profit or charity. If you don't properly look after and maintain your stock, you are going to have issues. Now, there are some sector-specific things in terms of how some of the stock was built. You had massive building programs in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. Not all of it was of the best quality, um, but some under-investment, and in some cases, non-investment, has come home to roost in that. So, yeah, fully agree. It, it, doesn't matter who you are as an entity, whether or not you're providing housing for private rent or for social, um, the standards are the same. You know, make sure it's suitable for habitation, make sure that you do your repairs promptly, and believe the blooming tenant when they're saying that they've got mushrooms and mold growing in the corner of your, your room because you'd want to sort that out regardless of whether you're living there or not and whether you're charging full market rent or submarket rent for that. Totally, totally agree with you on that, Neil. You mentioned you mentioned politics, and I I cannot. People that are going to be listening to this now might be rolling their eyes, going, "Oh, now here we go, politics." But politics does play a big role in, in effectively yeah. not just this episode, but the next two episodes as well. Um, I can understand that having changes of government every four or five years can be an absolute pain in the backside, especially when it comes down to policy. Um, but where did you want to lead with with politics? I'm, I'm sure you were going to make a few points there. Yeah, so it, it, it's kind of important to understand that 
drivers for, for social housing providers are cash and politics based. So it is you do not operate within a vacuum as an organisation. Many would like to, many housing associations are naturally very apolitical. They, they don't want to get involved in uh, you know, being standard bearers. They're just there to provide housing for their local communities. However, the broader context is key. So under the coalition government, there was a real drive to increase the number of houses being built um, across a whole range of sectors. Um, but there was criticism of some social housing providers for not developing enough. Um, and indeed, what we'll come to in the next couple of episodes is that's not necessarily an unfair one, albeit with some caveats. Additionally, if you have a government of the day saying, we want to make sure that you're the most financially effective, well-governed organisations, but we don't necessarily care much on how you treat your consumers, that will filter through in some way, shape or form. Now, I'm not saying that immediately overnight, come the uh, the 1st of April 2012, all housing providers were like, let's go punch our customers in the face. That's not not, not the aim here, but it, it's kind of that softly, softly impact. So mm-hmm. you, you, you're still feeling the after effects of 2007, 2008, even in 2012, you're seeing major financial cuts across the board. I mean, the capital budget for social housing was cut by 60% from the programme that ended by the time the coalition government came into its replacement in 2011 to 2015. So significantly less cash around to build more houses, but you're getting told to build more houses. So what do you do? Well, you look to become more efficient. How can you become more efficient? Well, you reduce down your outgoings. Now, you can do that in staff overheads. You can squeeze some of your, your contractors for the for what you, you bring them in to do. You can change your investment programme, push it over a longer period of time. So instead of doing 30 years, you do 40, 50 years. Um, or you reduce down your, your repairs programmes. Now, if you're a customer, none of that sounds great because it means you might have to wait longer for your repairs. You might have to deal with a new contractor on a lower spec for when they come out to do the repairs. You uh, might expect a lower spec kitchen or bathroom that isn't replaced for a longer period of time. So when they come out, instead of going in and being like, no, your kitchen's in a proper state, yes, this is just general wear and tear. We, we need to replace it to maintain value of stock. They'll come and go, actually, we'll replace those two covered doors and you just got to make do for a while because you know we're not putting in the we don't have the money this year in the program that's naturally going to filter through um in the same time many organizations were looking at their operating models from a housing management point of view so historically you're looking at sub 500 units for what they call intensive housing management and in some cases it was 100 to 200 units per one housing officer so really tightly You'd know everyone. You'd know that number 13 would never answer the door because they haven't paid their rent. You knew number 16 was a bit of a cheeky monkey, but actually fundamentally all right. You knew that there was DV going on at number 22, and you knew that the rest were fine and weren't going to bother you. You know, People knew their patches. And what you're seeing is a way to create greater efficiencies is that you would, instead of having one per 200, you'd have one per 1,000 you know, or two per 2,000. Um, and so people who are used to seeing someone regularly walk the streets no longer would. So some of the issues that might get caught and nipped earlier on no longer were. Mm-hmm. Um, 
all of these come back to less cash flowing through, but demand for needing to build more housing. And that is a political decision. One hundred percent where we decide to spend our cash or if we decide to spend our cash as a as a nation is a political decision. So I, I agree most people roll their eyes at politics um, when it gets mentioned. I don't blame them, but it does have a significant impact. And it's not necessarily an outright critique on the coalition government of the day, but I do have a significant issue with some of the stuff they did. Um, it's just a fact of nature of influence of things and how the sectors evolved as a result. So from 1st of April 2012, we said so you've got all of you know all of these new policies and, and so forth mm-hmm. coming. There's been almost like a 180 degree turn there. So just to just to clarify, because I think you've mentioned a couple of effects mm-hmm. that have happened over the last 10 years. But just just summarize again what has happened over the last 10 years and then what what's likely to I'm going to ask you to go into your crystal ball here to an extent, but what's likely to happen moving on in the future? So currently there is a piece of legislation in the House of Lords, which eventually flow to the Commons and become law, and that is the Social Housing Open Bracket Regulation Closed Bracket Bill. I mean, they name them some really funky stuff, but effectively this is the new era of housing regulation. In many ways, it's going back to the future. Um, A lot of the stuff that they're bringing in is stuff that was taken out um, but it is generally regarded, although not an unflawed uh, piece of legislation, to have largely looked to achieve what it set out to do and has been heavily influenced by social housing tenants. Um, Alok Sharma, when he wasn't trying to save us from a fiery death thanks to uh, global warming, one of his uh, last main uh, briefs was housing. And he started off a series of roadshows with tenants to directly speak to outside of the auspices of housing associations. So it's not some kind of handpicked cabal of people, um, what they were going through, understanding the day to day frustrations of living within social housing and the, the problems that they faced. Those conversations heavily influenced the design. And in fairness to those who came in after Sharma, in particular Robert Jenrick, stayed largely true to what they were looking to change. Um, But some of the key highlights are serious detriment is going. So you will have, again, a proactive regulation on the consumer side of the uh, regulatory environment. Um, Some changes are potentially now going to have unlimited fines applied to social landlords, whereas before they were capped. That that could now be quite significant significant um naming and shaming we've actually had the first uh production of this so uh those organizations whether they have failed um from a housing ombudsman point of view who deals with individual complaints or whether it's systemic failures they will now be published um from the central government websites because housing ombudsman's always published uh, its reports um on who has had maladministration failings or service failings found against it very, very, very briefly, for the housing ombudsman, you have to go through the internal mechanisms of a housing association complaints process prior to going to the housing ombudsman. So if you had a vulture repair and you weren't happy with it, you made a complaint and the housing association went, no, that's fine. You go to the next tier, head of service reviews it and go, I'm still not happy with what you've said. Then go to the final tier and say, no, 
we're, we're still signing them ourselves. You can then take it to the housing ombudsman who will investigate. They have a massive backlog at the moment uh, because post-COVID, you've seen a significant increase in repairs-related complaints because of some of the alterations to service that had to occur as a result. Um, those findings are now publicly published, not just on the housing ombudsman website, but on the uh, Department for Leveling Up uh, website as well. So you're getting a real kind of, you have done wrong, we're going to embarrass you by pushing this out there. So that, that's quite a change. Uh, additionally, Freedom of Information Act there are specific exemptions to the existing FOI Act in relation to housing associations because they are not a public body. Um, although there won't be an exact like for like, there's going to be a very similar change whereby um, individuals can submit a FOI style submission to a housing association and they'll be duty bound to respond to that. Because currently um, you, you can't send in an FOI to a housing association. Well, you can, they just don't have a duty to respond and we'll just put it in a bit or politely write back more likely and say, sorry, we're not covered by this. Uh, inspections. So the Audit Commission used to do inspections for uh, of housing associations. They are back. So we will have in-depth inspections again, looking at the consumer side of things because we have in-depth assessments on the economic and the governance side of things, but not on the consumer side. Um, named individuals within housing associations uh, for uh, health and safety. So to help avoid something like Grenfell happening again, you'll have an individual named for overarching responsibility, public facing, they will be in the line of fire for one of a better phrase. Um, so a big change there. And there's also been some massive updates to the housing ombudsman scheme uh, to make it more robust indeed and ability because very bizarre housing ombudsman couldn't use to refer cases to the regulator of social housing so they could have gone in investigate an individual complaint seen actually this seems to be more than just one person's issue but they weren't able to then refer it to the regulator of social housing to go have a look for the systemic issue because of that serious detriment uh, test that was in place because of the inability or the regulator to proactively manage the consumer standards. So in short, some big, heavy changes coming. Um, a lot of them, you know, say back to the future, we're, we're going to see a very more proactive uh, regulatory environment um, for housing associations in particular. Um, and indeed, when it's been doing its public engagement and, you know, kind of B2B engagement, the regulator's been saying, look, it's about housing. Uh, not about housing, it's about repairs, stupid. Sort out your repair service. That's what we're focusing on. We know you're not delivering here. We know your customers are frustrated. Get your proverbials in order because it's not good enough. And that probably follows the mantra of uh, focus, follow one course till successful. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, so you're not going to just miraculously change things overnight. So we're getting them to focus on, in this case, repairs. Then mm. that will hopefully eradicate that backlog. And, and I guess the fact well, I guess just thinking out loud from the same time is it's always good to have a, a bit of efficiency, but then there is that fine point where it becomes silly. I mean, having one person responsible for, as you say, a thousand homes, that's, that, that you know, to me that, that, that means that there's not potentially a lot of attention on each person, whereas one to 200 obviously sounds a lot better. And as you say, can nip into the bud. We could probably go on sort of all day and, you know, about 
the, the pros mm. and cons of that. But just just to summarise then, so discussed what housing regulation is and mm. basically gone through a brief history of it and the changes that have been made and changes that are coming up. Is there anything else that you think, Neil, that people need to know right now about housing regulation? Anything else to add, basically? Um, I think it's just that there has been a significant recognition that change needs to happen. It's probably come a bit later than it should have done. Um, Housing associations, by and large, are buying into it. You'll always get a few who think, you know, they know it all and are better than what they potentially are. Um, I think largely a lot of this is just unnecessary because it was in place. And had it been kept in place, things might have been different for a significant number of people. Um, we just know that change is coming and it will come soon. The new regulations go live from April 23. So the legislation is flowing through, but all the other stuff has been done. So anything that doesn't require primary legislation is basically in place. Um, uh, and as either gone live or will be coming live very soon. And then from April 23, once legislation to pass through the House of Commons, it's go time. So I would expect to see some fireworks in the next couple of years where the first big organisations are found wanting. And if I'd put any money on it, I'd put Clarion being the first housing association to get a significant slap on the wrist because it's it's had several maladministration judgments found on it this year. It's been absolutely raked over the coals um, for service failure, in particular in relation to repairs. Um, and it, if there's going to be one organisation, I feel it will be one.